you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Kelly, thanks so much. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Scott Wapner, live from Post 9 here at the New York Stock Exchange. And this make-or-break hour begins with wobbly stocks as another rate-fueled sell-off grips this market. It's doing it right now. Here's your scorecard with 60 minutes to go in regulation. We'll start with yields. That's what we're showing you now because that's where the pressure point really is. That's where it has been, and that's where it is yet again today. The 10-year, take a look, continuing its climb to fresh cycle highs, and thus it's hard to find many bright spots for stocks today. All three of the major averages under pressure throughout the session. Transports, utilities once again sliding, although now I look and utilities are green. Not as if that's any consolation in the kind of market we're in anyway. And unlike yesterday when tech managed to rise despite the jump in yields, totally different story today. The Nasdaq getting absolutely slammed. Mega caps like Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA are pulling back sharply all of that. Plus the congressional drama in D.C. We think that's taking a bit of a toll today as well. Just D.C. dysfunction on top of everything else. That takes us to our talk of the tape. How high will rates rise? And if they keep going up, can stocks handle the heat? It seems to be the only question that really matters at the moment, especially with earnings season still more than a week away. Well, let's ask our panel, senior markets commentator Mike Santoli, Schwab's Kevin Gordon, and Malcolm Etheridge of CIC Wealth. Uh, it's good to have everybody here. Mike, I'll go to you first. So I got two things of green on my screen. The VIX at 20, a little north, and then utilities reversing to be positive. So that, that's not exactly a great sign no, it's uh, for not. the market. No, very faint bid. Uh, also, Staples outperforming. So you finally see some of the traditional defensives responding uh, to the kind of market conditions we are in. You have uh, essentially the bond market searching for the pain threshold, for the economy. We don't know where it is. We, I, my, my premise is always that the stock market can usually over time make its peace with a different equilibrium level of yields, but you, you don't know in, in the moment where that is. So we're struggling with that. Uh, at, the, at the same time, it felt as if last week was stopping just short of a capitulation type move and everybody really giving up because we did have, you know, the, the seasonal strength, uh, you know, fairy whispering in our ears saying don't get too negative going into October. So now we get an extra little flush and repricing of the market. I would say even though you, you mentioned some of those mega cap stocks uh, taking it uh, kind of hard today in general, it's not really concentrated anywhere. Equal weight, small cap, NASDAQ 100, S&P 500, they're all kind of in the general, general zone uh, of just down getting a haircut on this bond move. Kevin Gordon, we might be talking about 5% on the 10-year faster than we thought we would even after the rise that we've seen. Yeah. We're at 480, a little bit north of that as we speak. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably some psychological level associated with five. I'm much more in the camp where I think rate volatility matters more than just levels because, yeah, you've gone now into, you know, back into kind of extreme in, uh, sort of negative relationship, negative correlation between bond yields and stock prices, broadly for the S&P, especially for certain areas like tech and also utilities. Um, and anytime you have moves to the upside like you've seen over the past 30 days or the past 60 days, similar to what you saw in October of last year and then sort of May, June of last year, that rapid 
rapid rise in the 10-year, um, and really across the curve, but that was kind of what had put a lot of downward pressure on equity. So I think as long as that continues, um, and then vice versa, if you get maybe a little bit of a stabilization in not just rate volatility, but also for the dollar and oil, which it's it started to happen a little bit for oil, that probably helps alleviate some of the stress that you're seeing. I mean, you, you've got, you know, Mike, a, a lot of seasoned market watchers kind of weighing in on, on what they're seeing, and it doesn't seem to be all that difficult to understand, at least according to what they're talking about. Mohamed El Arian tweeted earlier, last year markets were adjusting to higher rates, this year adjusting to rates staying higher for longer. It's like the Tepper commentary that we got last Friday. It is just a different environment, and no one really knows what the price should be relative to what the earnings are going to be. Yeah. The valuation of this market makes sense. It's the great unknown. Well, and because it's moving too fast, I mean, to Kevin's point, it's, it's not just about, again, plug it into the equation and what does 4.8% on the 10-year get you in terms of paying for earnings. Uh, right now, I think a not-so-terrible scenario would be that somehow the economy hangs in there, earnings estimates for on a forward-going basis for the next couple of quarters are not out of line with what we expect, and the market maybe can find its way. What I think is tough, though, is, and this has been the case for months, you're not going to liberate investors from the late cycle psychology, from this idea that it's when, not if, things buckle. Uh, even if we go a, a year from now, we're still going to feel that way. And so that's why anything that moves fast and seems like indiscriminate selling, like the bond market seems right now, it gets you unnerved. And I understand that. But all that being considered, we're looking at like an 8% pullback in the S&P. The average stock's doing a whole lot worse than that. And, but at the index level, we're back to four months ago where we first re- reached 42. You make a good point, the, the words that you use. Malcolm, I'll come to you in just a second. I, I, I apologize. Um, indiscriminate selling. Like it's one thing to see it, Mike, in the stock market, which is unnerving enough. But when you start seeing indiscriminate selling in the bond market, in treasuries, it's even more so, isn't it? Because of all the implications that come with it. To a degree, yes. I mean, it's an enormous market. Uh, there's a lot of institutions or uh, that are just kind of passive owners of treasuries. Um, that said, you know, we, we do have some big buyers who are not there the way they were. We do have more supply. I think if you want to take some heart in corporate spreads remaining kind of tame, they have ticked up a little bit. Uh, still, the yields are going up. The cost of debt's going up, uh, however you slice it. So, Malcolm, um, it- Big thing that jumps out to me in your notes today, resist the urge to buy dips. So you think the stock market is going lower? I do, Scott. This is the part back last summer probably where I was telling you that I thought investors who were a little bit too far over their skis as far as the risk that they had built into their portfolios because we weren't willing to sell because the getting was too good. It felt too good to us. I was on air saying I think this is the exit that people need to be taking if they know that this is well beyond where their risk profile is. And I think that we're probably going to continue in this downtrend for a little bit, but I do expect that um, uh, investors who missed out on the tech rally earlier in the year are gonna wanna buy these dips uh, just to be able to try and right the ship just a little bit and feel like they didn't miss out completely once the year uh, turns over and they book it. But I definitely think it's too soon. I think we have more pain uh, on the way uh, simply because, you know, everything that we've been talking about as far as the, the 10 years concerned, right? But I'm more concerned about the inverse relationship still between the 10 and the two that I know we want to move past and focus on and say that, you know, it's no longer relevant. But that yield curve has stayed inverted for this long. And I think it means additional pain is ahead. Let's not forget, too, Malcolm, in a week or so, we're going to be talking about earnings, right? What happens if earnings come in to where expectations are, which are positive again, 
um, or even better? Does that alleviate some of the pressure that the market's feeling from this rapid rise in rates that we've seen over the last 30 plus days? Yeah, so my thesis in Q1 was that that was the last positive earnings season that we were going to see, and I think that's probably proving true now. I think that the positive uh, earnings are going to be in the tech sector primarily because when you hold that much in cash, right, you have companies like Google and Microsoft and Apple and whoever that have tens of billions of dollars sitting in cash that's paying them yields north of 5%. Not hard to, to, to have positive numbers uh, in that regard. But I think that in tech and in energy, obviously, we're going to have positive earnings. For everyone else, we're going to find out just how weak the consumer has become. We're going to find out just how little firepower the consumer now has. And that, I think, is going to tell a totally different story uh, going into Q4. Uh, looking back at Q3 earnings. What are we thinking, Kev, about uh, tech right here? NASDAQ's down a touch more than 2% as we speak. Mike was mentioning, uh, you know, the sell-off in a lot of these mega cap names. Amazon's down 4%. Uh, Broadcom's down. NVIDIA's down near 3%. As Microsoft. Apple's not down quite as much, but it's that whole area is being just pulled down. Um, Tesla's down 2%. Just looking at all the stocks that we talk about almost every day that somehow bucked it yesterday. Uh, but today are buckling. Yeah, I mean, I think to Mike's point earlier about not everything moving all together at once, you know, the tech discretionary com services trade often gets lumped together in that mega cap growth trade, mostly because they house the Super 7 or the Big 5, whichever group you want to use. But even if you look at the peak since July for the market, um, you know, the, the profile of all three of those has looked vastly different, whether you're looking at percentage performance, whether you're looking at percentage of names above their 50 or 200 day moving averages. And, you know, for all the hits that tech takes um, from a valuation perspective or whatever you want to pick, you know, the, it's, it's still scoring relatively well, um, I think right at 60% of members above their 200-day moving average, behind energy, of course, which has been the only defensive name since the market's peak in July. So I think you have to take a little bit of a more nuanced approach, not just in this current sell-off, not when we get the next bounce, but not approach the market in any monolithic way, whether it's cyclicals versus defensives, whether it's growth versus value, I think you have to be a lot more careful about how you dissect those because, you know, correlations are still pretty low. You can, I think, take opportunities, even in sell-offs like this, to find what's high quality, what works really well, especially with an upcoming earnings season, mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of benefit from any tailwind to the upside there. Well, how, how do you view what's going to happen in, in earnings season? As I said to Malcolm, we're, we're going to shift our attention yeah. and we're going to be hyper-focused on, on the numbers more so than maybe the numbers in the bond market at the moment, and is that enough to sort of save the day? I think what's most important probably, and this plays off of what we started to see in the second quarter reporting season, where even though the earnings beat rate edged higher and there was a lot of excitement over that, the reaction from the market, even for companies that were beating estimates, um, was basically nothing. It was basically flat. So, you know, in our opinion, that had shifted the focus a lot more. That showed that the market shifted its focus to what was the revenue growth like. And revenue was mostly flat. And if you adjust it for inflation, it was down for the third straight quarter. So from our view, you want to be much more focused on what the revenue mix is, too. Because if you don't have organic demand growth coming back and you don't have top line growth resurging, but you still have earnings growth that's moving higher, that's probably companies just aggressively cutting costs. So I think it's great from a profit margin protection standpoint but you have to start showing some kind of demand coming back to. Mike, you always talk about what's going on under the surface, trying to dig a little deeper than the superficial story that we, we often you know, focus on. Uh, number of stocks in the S&P up on the year, 227. Yeah. Number down, 271. Median S&P 500 stock now down 2.3% year to date. That gives you the under the hood view yeah. that the engine itself is sputtering. 
uh, and sure. isn't running on all cylinders, right. and it's been carried by a gas tank full of tech stocks. For sure. I, the average, the median stock in the S&P is also off about 16% from its high. So forget about just calendar year 2023. Um, I think the question is, what do you do with that information? Do you say, um, uh, as a lot of people right now are saying, who felt too bearish when the S&P was making uh, new highs and was up 30% off its lows, yeah, but it's not really as strong as it looks. And now I think there's a little bit of an instinct to declare victory. It's like, you see, I told you, stuff's really weak. Now the comeuppance. But what do you do with it now? Do you say that the market has actually been pre-sold and a lot of valuation risk has been taken out? Or do you say there's just no demand for stocks right now and, and they're going to have to find lower lows to attract uh, new buyers? I think that's a legitimate question. Uh, I can remember years like 2016 when you had this stealth bear market and, you know, in 2019 when it was just like a handful of the, the Nasdaq stocks going up. And it was not always predictive of we're going down from here in the index. So we've had a little bit of a catch down move from the large caps and we'll see where it goes from here. In terms of the earnings season, we talked about it on Friday, 116 companies have pre-announced for the quarter in the S&P 500. So almost one in four. All right. So a little, a little of the suspense. So you got a little bit of a cheat sheet. The market's down 8% in two months. You know, the banks are down 15% in, in, since August. I don't think that the people are positioned for wonderful things for earnings. Malcolm, so taking what Mike just said, what returns demand for stocks? What changes the narrative? Yeah, I, well, two things. I think, one, we have to get past the sentiment of bad news means good news. I know the last few days the market has kind of trended in one direction, but I still think there's enough sentiment out there listening to some of the uh, voices on the network uh, where we feel like bad news means good news. And I think we have to get to a place where bad news just means bad news and we're willing to accept it as it is. And until that happens, which I do think is Q3 earnings, uh, until that happens, we can't actually move forward to the point where it makes sense to start moving some chips back to the middle of the middle of the table. So uh, I'm not arguing against anybody who thinks it's dry powder time. I think that's probably pretty smart here. But separately from that, we have to find out exactly what is going to happen in November and whether that is the sticking point as far as higher for longer. Does that mean that we just keep rates steady after November and we get a raise in November? And, and, and that no more, and we get the declaration that this is it? Or do we now have to be looking over our shoulder all the way into 2024, which I think the market just doesn't have the uh, temperament to hold on and, and wait and see how that what plays if, out. That could what if, be what if a you bad had, news equals more. I'm sorry, what if you had a crystal ball and you said, okay, um, the Fed's done, I know they're done, and earnings are gonna be better than I thought. Does that change your perception of whether you wanna be engaged in the market right now or not? It doesn't because I think something else still has to break. It just doesn't make common, logical, mathematical sense for us to raise short-term interest rates more than 5% in about a year and nothing meaningfully break. So until we get to it, and I think that's probably on the horizon, right? It usually takes something like 18 to 24 months for interest rate increases to actually work themselves through the labor market. And that pretty much means by the end of this year, maybe we start to see an uptick in that unemployment number that we've been able to hang our hats on this whole time while we've been talking about fighting inflation. All of the responses have been, yeah, but the unemployment rate is at all time lows. And unless that changes, we're in good shape. Well, I think that's probably going to finally change because interest rates have such a long lag uh, impacting the labor market. And once that does, that probably is where that bad news equals bad news uh, mantra starts to come in. Kev, how would you address that very same 
question. Well, I think the discussion about, first of all, from the Fed's perspective, if you go back and look at when they've been done, when they've gotten to the pause and then they're, they're done, that in and of itself doesn't constitute any kind of trading strategy just because of the really wide range that you have throughout history of what the market's done after. I think you have to take a look at what's going on with revenue growth, you know, the hits that come after, which you typically see a year after the Fed starts tightening, and then a year after that, what starts happening to the labor market. And to Malcolm's point about, you know, interest rate sensitivity, how much the economy is maybe impervious to rate hikes, um, you know, one of the reasons it's been a little bit different this time is because if you look at how we recovered from the pandemic, the bulk of spending and services and just the strength of that part of the economy, um, you know, that was disproportionate relative to goods on a scale that we've really never seen. So when you talk about all the padding and think about all the padding that was in services, the fact that goods has gone through some form of a recession, but that really hasn't hit the broader economy, that to us remains the best case scenario, where you start to see rates take their bite, but it's in different pockets at different times, and that rolling nature of the recessionary behavior um, sort of keeps you afloat from a broad economic sense. I'll tell you, Mike, what you know maybe is one of the most acute pain points within the, the market relative to the rise in rates as we talk about the Nasdaq and the sell-off there are those higher growth, less profitable stocks, which we just showed you some yeah. of them I noticed on there. Datadog, I think you guys had up. You can put them up again, please, if you would, just because I'm looking at the ARK Innovation ETF down near 3% today. I mean, it's easy to see where the bulk of the pain within the growth spectrum is being felt. Right. Um, look, when the market moves in, in a volatile way this, in this fashion, it's, it's having to go farther to find people who have conviction. So it's hard enough to find people who have conviction about is Johnson & Johnson going to make its numbers next year, as opposed to these companies that are kind of lightning in the bottle, maybe it'll work, you know, profits down the road if we're lucky. That's not what's going to find uh, buyers in a tape like this. Yeah. Do you have a thought on that, uh, about that, that cohort, if you will? Of, of stocks that are, you know, we showed the losses are like 6%. Yeah. I saw at least for two or three of the names that we had put. Yeah, there you go. There's, you know, Airbnb, Zscaler, Datadog. You probably find CrowdStrike. You probably find, you know, a half dozen other names at minimum that are seeing this level of selling today as rates continue to tick to cycle highs. And a lot of those non-profitable names were sort of at the epicenter and kind of ground zero of that initial shock that you had in 2021. And they kind of kicked off what we had seen as remarkable weakness under the surface of the market in 2021 into 2022, that's where a lot of the bubble activity was concentrated. Didn't really make its way over to the traditional market, um, which is, I think, one of the reasons that, you know, the bear market for 2022, as you know, rough as it was, um, the, the rebound since then hasn't been, you know, totally catastrophic. It hasn't been great. Uh, but I think that now you have to think, what is the effect of higher for longer and the Fed wanting to stick to that message? And if cost of capital stays relatively high, even if you go through the next easing cycle and the Fed pulls the Fed funds rate back to a range that's not zero, that's a very different environment than what you had, you know, post-financial crisis all up until, you know, 2020, 2021. I was just looking at the banks, too, uh, as you were talking, just because we flashed Goldman Sachs on the screen, which I think I saw down 4% as that sector remains you know, that those stocks aren't, aren't doing well, um, down 3% in a week. Um, all right, we'll leave it there. Kevin, thank you. Thanks, Malcolm, Tyler. thanks. We'll see you soon. Mike, of course, coming back in our market zone, as always. Let's get to our question of the day. Will the 10-year yield get above 5% before the end of the month? I mean, it's marching quickly towards that level. Again, 480 as we have this conversation today. Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on X to vote. The results are coming up a little later on in the hour. In the meantime, a check on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Christina Partsinevelos is back today with that. Christina.
Well, let's talk about Point Biopharma soaring as Eli Lilly announces plans to buy the cancer therapy developer for $12.50 a share in cash or around $1.4 billion. You can see that stock is up 85% right now, but shares of Eli Lilly falling in the news down about 2.5%. And a number of alternative energy stocks are sinking again today on concerns, yes, of the general economic picture, but more so the impact of what you were talking about, Scott, high rates on growth-focused companies. On the solar side, Array Technologies, Sunrun are among the biggest losers right now. You can see Array down 9%. You've got EV charging giant ChargePoint and fuel cell developer Bloom Energy also well over uh, at least 5% lower right now. Scott? All right, Christina, we'll talk to you in just a bit. Thank you, Christina Parts We're just getting started here. Up next, more on the sell-off in mega cap tech today. The NASDAQ dropping 2%. We break down the biggest moves and the health of that tech trade at large. Plus, one chart watcher says there could be greater decline still ahead. He makes his case coming up. We're live for the New York Stock Exchange. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Closing Bell. Stocks moving lower as a rate-fueled sell-off takes hold of this market yet again. The Nasdaq feeling the most pain today. Steve Kovac joins us now with a look at today's action, and it's ugly action at that, Steve. Yeah, ugly. And Nasdaq, by the way, could be the third worst day of the year. So, But let's take a snapshot of mega cap tech names feeling the pain today, Scott. Um, Apple shares down about a percent. Early signs of strong demand for the iPhone 15 Pros out there with wait times extending into a month. But this September quarter that just finished expected to be Apple's fourth quarter in a row of declining sales. However, in this current holiday quarter, comps are going to look a lot better. Also, an ugly September for Apple down 9% last month. Microsoft down 3% or so. CEO Satya Nadella testifying yesterday in the DOJ's antitrust case against Google, admitting he may have overhyped ChatGPT's potential to grow Bing Search's market share. Company just released its AI assistant co-pilot for Windows 11 last week and it's going to start selling that to business customers next month. Now let's move over to Amazon, down more than 3.5% or so. Details leaking out today from an unredacted version of FTC's antitrust lawsuit against the company. It alleges Amazon used a secret algorithm called Project Nessie to automatically adjust prices of goods and earn an extra billion dollars in sales before canceling the program. And Alphabet, not as bad, down about a percent or so, currently undergoing its antitrust trial, expected to last several weeks or uh, several more weeks, that is, and could threaten its search dominance if it loses its case against the government. Meanwhile, Meta down more than two percent coming off its developers conference last week that failed to wow investors with A.I. offerings like chatbots that mimic celebrities like Paris Hilton and Snoop Dogg. 
plus its new headset, the MetaQuest 3, that's going to launch a week from today. And of course, we got to talk about AI darling NVIDIA down over oh, nearly 3% now, but still up nearly 200% on the year, Scott. All right, Steve Kovac, thank you very much for that. For more on the big move in the market, let's bring in Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG's chief market technician, because he's zeroing in today for all of you on the NASDAQ. Um, you suggest the NASDAQ 100, the Qs, have, have gone 198 trading days without a 2.5% or worse daily decline. That was your note from earlier today, uh, prescient given what we're witnessing here. What are you watching for now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. We've The last time we went a full calendar year without a 2.5% or worse daily decline on the NASDAQ was 2013. And if you think about that period, the NASDAQ composite had pretty much 70% of stocks above the 200-day for the bulk of the year. This year, we barely have any, any days above 50%. So, um, you know, 2013 was a classic low volatility environment. You would expect that. You would not expect it this year. And I think it just goes to show, um, you know, again, it's another way of showing how, how dominant uh, a handful of stocks have been. And as you and Mike were discussing earlier, uh, you know, it really has not been a good year for stocks in general. I think the, you know, the headline indices is S&P up 12 percent, NASDAQ up 35 percent or so. Um, it really just is, is in a completely different ballpark from the median stock, which most, uh, you know, most institutional investors, that's that's really what they're owning. So ultimately, you know, we think that, uh, you know, this 4200 level in the S&P 500 uh, with the 200 moving average is a very consensus call that that will hold. Um, and we think the fourth quarter rally is a very consensus call. So ultimately, uh, we're not so sure it's going to be that easy. And we think um, we're at the point now where you're starting to see some of the winners, some of the uh, high momentum stocks catch down to the laggards. And I think that's ultimately what um, you know drives the Nasdaq lower here. Read at least one note today, speaking of Nasdaq, that the risk to the negative market call is that there is a late year dash for performance and it goes right into the seven stocks that have proven to be tried and true, a little bit of defensive, you have better balance sheets, all the cash, not relying on debt, et cetera. Yeah, look, I think that's why they're up so much, and that's the crowding risk, right? And so I think if we're getting a little ahead of ourselves talking about the year-end rally until we get, until we see you know, where things shake out as we get through October. Um, and we don't know that, right? If, if we get a, a bigger washout in the, in the, you know, the top seven stocks, then sure, maybe that's the case. But I, you know, based on our work, there's still a, a lot of downside for these um, names. And you know, you're seeing the, the unwinding effect. Some of the worst performing stocks on the year, a name like Dollar General is actually up 2% today. So you're seeing some of those uh, laggards being bought and some of the winners being sold. And I think we're still a bit early to, uh, you know, to, to flip the script there. Man, I'm looking at some of these losses today out of the discretionary space, which obviously gets, you know, um, overmoved, if you will, by uh, an Amazon or a Tesla, for, for example. But the losses today in some of the restaurant stocks, Domino's down more than 4%. The cruise lines are getting absolutely hammered. Carnival's down near 7%. Mortgage rates, we're talking about yields going up relentlessly. Mortgage rates continue to do that, too. 7-7 on a mortgage rate. It's stunning to see these numbers because people are just not used to the levels being where they are. Home builders today, um, Pulte Group down 3%, Depot and Lowe's. Um, how at risk do you think is uh, the discretionary space in, in general for a consumer that's held in there better than most ever expected it would? 
Well, you know, the, the consumer space is something we talked about um, several weeks ago when, when crude oil and gasoline were breaking out. And we, you know, there was a lot of consumer and restaurant stocks were in weak technical positions. And we thought the, uh, you know, the spike higher in, in energy prices um, was another headwind there. So, look, the trend in most of those names are certainly are certainly weak and continue to be weak. Um, I think the only areas that we're, you know, suggesting maybe you can see a bounce on are the extremely washed out names, like I mentioned, like a Dollar General. Um, but there's still, you know, it's not going to be an easy path, right? I mean, we're talking about um, trends that are severely damaged, and um, you can get bounces there, but it's going to take a lot to uh, to reverse those downtrends. How about energy? Give me a thought on that before I let you bounce. Um, you've got another, uh, you know, a green day for crude, uh, Brent, WTI as well. We're basically at 90 bucks. Yeah, look, I think if it, outside of uh, some of the extremely beaten down areas, if we have to be anywhere, we'll probably uh, we'll probably stick with the energy trade. I think at some point it does um, come to the unwind factor, right? I mean, at some point, even the even the best stocks get unwound. So if this sell off intensifies for the next couple of days, I think even energy would be at risk. But the trends there are still pretty good. So I think it's more of a uh, of a tactical pullback. All right, Jonathan, we'll see you soon. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it very much. Jonathan Krinsky, as you can see from BTIG. Straight ahead, the latest on dysfunction down in D.C. The House gets ready to vote on the motion to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and stocks remain under pressure. It's just yet another thing to keep your eyes on over the final stretch here, which has about 30 minutes to go. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business welcome to connie's coffee how may i help you aarp's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aarp start planning today at aarp.org money tools breaking news out of dc today the house preparing to vote on whether to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Emily Wilkins on Capitol Hill following every move. Emily. Hi, Scott. Well, there was already one vote today, basically a vote on whether the House should even be voting on whether to remove McCarthy. And on that one, we saw every single Democrat join with 11 Republicans in favor of ousting McCarthy and moving forward on that. Now, that means that McCarthy still has a lot of Republicans who are supporting him. But the fact of the matter is, is that Republicans always had narrow margins and it meant something like this was always possible. So right now in the House, they are debating moving forward. We're expecting to see a vote begin around four o'clock on whether to remove McCarthy from his office. That'll be a roll call vote, so it's probably going to last a while, but it's just really not looking good for McCarthy. There's a high likelihood that at the end of today, there could be no Speaker of the House and no sense of which path to go forward. You know, Matt Gates told a group of us last night, he threw out Steve Scalise's name, that's McCarthy's number two, but Steve Scalise is actually on the floor right now speaking in favor of McCarthy. So it's simply not clear who could actually have the momentum and support to be speaker at this point, but it certainly looks like McCarthy is in hot water. And if the House does have to go to a speaker vote, it means everything else stops. So everything they want to do to fund the government, to pass legislation, to move things forward. I think we lost the audio there from Emily. At least I did. I'm not sure about all of you watching, um, but let's uh there's any news that develops there, we'll bring Emily back. Uh, that's Emily Wilkins reporting on the Hill, as you saw there. Joining us now on the phone is Kenner Fitzgerald's Eric Johnston. Eric, you there? Yes. Hi, Scott. Okay. How are you? Yeah, it's good to have you on. Um, 
Obviously, we're watching a Dow that's down 500 points, and we've had a rip higher in rates, which seems to be the pressure point. I'm, I'm looking at banks, um, which are down sharply. Bank of America, Citi, John Spallanzani sending over. They're retesting their spring regional bank failure lows. Uh, discretionary stocks getting hammered. Tech is in the eye of the storm today. Just what's your broad view on what we're witnessing? Yeah, so I think the big story here is what's going on in the rates market. And the reason why it's important is that today, um, inflation break-evens are actually lower, meaning the market thinks the outlook for inflation is actually lower. And there's been very little change in Fed expectations. So the entire move higher in yields is all real yields moving, moving higher. And they're moving higher because of this deficit and debt issue that we had. So, you know, the, the market has and the economy has absolutely benefited from the deficit. We've talked about this for, for a long time. We're running a $2 trillion deficit, and that has been a stimulus. But if it was that easy just to run a large stimulus and, of course, or a large deficit, there's obviously a downside, and we're starting to finally see that downside. Um, and that's what's happening with, with yields moving higher. So, you know, you're seeing it across, across sectors. And, you know, we've seen the financial situation show up back in, in February, March. We've now seen the utility situation show up um, as of, you know, last week. And we've seen a lot of pain in that sector. And what you can see is that it's rolling through different sectors because higher rates not only impact the consumer and will continue to, but also corporations. Yeah, I mean, I said these discretionary stocks today, uh, hotels, casinos, Restaurants, all these sensitive uh, areas. So, are you suggesting that as long as this move in rates continues to be at the forefront, that stocks just are not going to be able to do anything but go down? Yeah, it's going to be really tough to, for stocks to work as long as yields are in this zone. Um, for a couple of reasons, it's not only the headwinds from you know corporate interest expense. Um, which we're seeing, you know, real time. But it's also looking at valuations, right? It's looking at the alternatives. And what's important is that the reason why yields are moving higher, one of the big reasons is that the government's net issuance of treasuries is going to be about $800 plus billion this quarter. That number was less than 400 one year ago. And so capital has to come from somewhere in order to absorb that supply. And it's unlikely to come from our, from, you know, our international friends. It's going to really have to come from, um, you know, from much more domestic. And that's really going to pull capital from other places. So I will say that, you know, yields right now, bonds are very oversold. So there is a possibility of a reversion. But I think the trend is, uh, is in place that we're going to have higher yields for longer. Yeah, you know, we're, we're approaching, just lastly before I let you go, we are, we are approaching some interesting levels, uh, Eric, on the S&P, uh, 22, 23 points away from that 4,200 line, um, which may be a critical level to keep your eye on. Absolutely. Very important level. Um, you know, near the 200-day, the S&P RSI is, is, is 28, so we are oversold. Um, and then, of course, people are, are still hoping for the you know, fourth quarter seasonal bounce in the back of their mind. So I think we are, you know, susceptible to a potential, you know, reversion bounce. But I think the trend, um, I, you know, firmly believe the trend is still is still lower. All right, Eric, I appreciate you coming to the phone for us uh, as we Absolutely. track this sell off. Eric Johnson of Canner, you see him. We'll talk to you soon. Up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Christina Partinobolos is back with us. 
and that uh, has those stocks. Christina. Yeah, well, the maker of Frank's Red Hot Sauce, not feeling red hot in China. An analyst seeing an inflection point for Warby Parker. I'll explain next. Got about 15 to go before the closing bell. Let's get back to Christina Partinevelis now for a look at the key stocks she's watching. Christina. I'm watching Spice Maker McCormick. They raised their annual profit forecast, not because of demand, but because of higher prices. The maker of Frank's Red Hot Sauce posted weaker than expected Q3 sales, primarily due to a slower recovery from China. And that has some investors selling shares. The stock is down over 8 percent, its lowest level since March 2020. Warby Parker getting some love from Evercore analysts after they upgraded the eyewear retailer to outperform with a $20 price target. Their internal survey results show positive reaction from customers and above industry average repurchase intent. They say 2024 will be an inflection year for the retailer, and that's why shares are up almost uh, 4% right now, trading at $13.79. Scott? All right, Christina, thank you. Christina Partinobolos. We are also watching the housing space today. Mortgage rates are on the rise. Diana Olick is following that. You can see the residual impact, Di, on the housing stocks, the home improvement stocks. I mean, right in the wheelhouse of the things you look at every day. Yeah, all of it, Scott. Housing stocks are seriously having a rough day, and not just because of the broader market. Higher bond yields today mean higher mortgage rates. The average rate on the 30-year fix jumped to 7.72%. Mortgage rates follow loosely the yield on the 10-year Treasury, which has been climbing this week on strong economic data, and specifically that JOLTS report today. Rates have not been this high since the end of 2000. Higher rates have crushed affordability, hitting both new and existing home sales market. Take a look at the builders. Would you they are Horton, Lennar, Pulte, all down around 3 and Zillow Group is also down around 7%. The builders had been benefiting from the lack of existing home supply, but higher rates are just killing them. Builder sentiment is now in negative ter- territory for the first time in five months, Scott. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to be optimistic uh, when you see mortgage rates, Diana, do what, what they're doing uh, as we have this conversation. I appreciate it very much. It's Diana sure. Olick joining us, as you see, uh, from Washington. Last chance to weigh in on our question of the day. We asked, speaking of rates, Will the 10-year yield get above 5% before the end of the month? I mean, it's quickly marching in that direction. You can head to at CNBC Closing Bell on X. We'll bring you the results just after this break. Let's get the results now of our question of the day. We asked, will the 10-year get above 5% before the end of the month? The majority of you said yes. Guess one of the issues, will it get there before the end of the week? Uh, because of the way that it is marching there today, 4.80. That is a fresh cycle high for the 10-year note yield. Among the areas getting hit hard today, consumer stocks. Courtney Reagan following those moves. Courtney? Hi, Scott. Yeah, so if you take a look at the S&P 500 sectors, the consumer discretionary sector is the one that's the hardest to hear going into the close down about 3%. And then when you dig below the surface, you say, well, what are the names in the consumer discretionary sector hardest hit? And what's interesting is they're really leaning towards those travel and leisure names. So Airbnb, Carnival, Royal Caribbean, Caesars down 3%, almost as much as 7% on the high end there. Areas where the consumer really had been spending, not completely, you know, without abandon, but had been spending fairly freely after being pent up during the pandemic. But then you've also got a high-flying name like Amazon, obviously a really big, important name in a lot of different spaces. That falls in that consumer discretionary sector, and that's down almost 4% here right now. Now, then, of course, there's the home-related names that Diana Olick went through, so I won't go through them again, but they're part of the consumer discretionary sector. So that's really weighing on things as we watch interest rates rise, and it becomes that much more expensive to take on big projects or renovations or even move homes. But all of this is not to say, Scott, that retail isn't 
isn't being hard hit? Because it is. Names like Big Lots and Victoria's Secret, Wayfair, Canada Goose, they're just among some of the names that are being hit really, really hard here today, kind of crossing over all different areas of the consumer. Back over right. to you. Yeah, appreciate that very much, Courtney. Thank you, Courtney Reagan. We are now, by the way, in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down the crucial moments of this trading day. Plus, Bob Pisani's here on spiking yields, falling stocks, the Fed's next move, and options plays. Jessica Inskip on why she is sticking with tech in this sell-off. Mike, you first. What are you watching right now? Well, I mean, you can see at work in the market today uh, the inklings of the worst of both worlds scenario uh, on people's minds, which would be the economy is good enough right now and inflation remains, you know, not far enough from target that the Fed has to stay high for longer. The bond market dealing with the supply glut is also registering that at the same time. Uh, we're just building the conditions for the economy to buckle down the road. So all those things together, I think, are, uh, are weighing on what's happening right now. It is definitely building toward just tactically, you know, the kind of places that you thought the market needed to get to just to to maybe uh, have hope get extinguished and uh, and get to that point where you have the makings of a relief rally. You know, that question on do we get to 5 percent on the 10 year? It, you know, eventually you get to a moment where it's like, well, it's too close not to touch it. Two more days like today and you're there. Bob Pisani, um, Diana Look was telling us about mortgage rates, fresh high, 7.7%. Um, we know the impact that has yeah. on uh, the housing market. Uh, banks today, real point of concern. Uh, Bank of America down 3%. That you could pull up any number of these stocks. I just typed in Citigroup is down yeah. uh, about 2%. Goldman Sachs, I think we showed earlier, down 4%. What are you watching uh, more than anything else? Well, this there's point? only two questions we need to answer, and only two questions I've been asked today. Why is this happening, and when is it going to end? So there's a combination of factors here. One is the macro factor. We know about higher for longer for the Fed. We saw what the JOLTS report did. So there's a macro overlay to this. But I think Eric Johnson had a great point about the supply-demand equation for Treasuries. So on the supply side, we know there's huge supply of Treasuries coming. There's huge supplies of corporate coming. I think Janet Yellen talked about a trillion dollars in, in Treasuries coming in the near future. On the, on the demand side, we know foreign buyers are not going to be nearly as present in the Treasury auctions. We know banks probably won't because of pressure on their balance sheet. And the Fed's not doing anything. They're not. They're doing the opposite. They're no, but I mean, it, it, it has to stop somewhere, though, doesn't okay, it? Okay, so where does it stop? So what do we see today? What's at the highs for the day? Utilities. Okay. What's also moving up today? Consumer staples, General Mills, all stuff that's been in terrible shape. Tech's hitting new lows. That tells me we might have a little further to go because that's the main mover of the market. Right? Look at that. We're sitting at the highs today on utilities. The worst. I mean, the, that collapse in utilities was historic. They're going to be studying that. We, what's happening? I mean, the thing weeks. that I would that I would you know sort of migrate to when you talk about the setup for bonds and what stops it. It's the realities that we've all been detailing about supply and demand, but that the market itself is essentially overshooting the reality of the supply-demand imbalance. That's where I'm going to, because, yeah. I mean, when you Because it's just a fear of more supply sure, but that's we, driving the selling today. You get everybody on the same side of the right. boat, which is I feel like we've gotten there yeah. pretty quickly. Supply, supply, supply. Who are the buyers? Who are the buyers? Real right. rates going yeah. up, 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 and up. Because remember how yields go up. People sell bonds, okay? We didn't have an auction that nobody bought the bonds. You have people selling because they feel as if they were. And by the way, the setup for this was people badly positioned for exactly this, yeah. right? 
the, the idea that maybe the Fed's going to cut or the economy's going to weaken, the inverted yield curve is something you could ride and not fade. Well, I think that's being, uh, it's being unwound. I'll tell you what, we're, we're, we've been spoiled to some degree, Bob, by the NASDAQ itself. You yeah. know, Jonathan Krinsky was on talking about how the Qs haven't had a 2.5% or greater down day in an, in an awfully long time. 2.3? What are we down yeah. right now? I get it, until today, yeah. um, that we were due for some sort of upset in, in tech as rates continue to rise and the pressure point that 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 causes. So, you know, in in many respects, we're due for this moment for tech to have a role. The question is, you can't have it roll over too hard or the overall market won't be able to find its footing. Yeah, I think the the problem with the technical analysis that we're, you know, the the RSIs are, you know, crazy on these right now is, as you know, Mike, oversold. McClellan used to say oversold is a condition, not a signal. We can stay oversold for a very, very long time in this situation. So we, th- this is not necessarily, because we're hitting certain levels of technicals that we haven't seen, uh, we're four standard deviations away from where we normally are, it's, it's not necessarily a buying signal. So I tend to watch just simple stuff like the turnaround in utilities, the turnaround in consumers, and the fact that we haven't bottomed in, in, uh, in, in uh, tech what, stocks yet. What's so interesting is that when, when you say you know it, it's not necessarily a, a buying opportunity, Jessica Inskip, who's with us today from Options Place, suggests that it is a great buying opportunity in some of these tech names that have sold off pretty hard. Yeah, there's certainly a big test that's coming up. You know, there is this very large move in yields, and we're talking about this influx of supply. What I'm really watching is in the broader S&P 500, which has been propped up by tech is a large area of demand that we're reaching at 4195 that's dating back to June of 2021 and that's the real test and that that's lining up with so many other technical indicators like that rising 200 SMA we're looking to get those yields at 5% so we're just so close to those levels really of of finding stabilization on either end with the headwinds of fiscal policy all around so i'm i'm really looking for the test of those levels but to your point on tech and we're talking about structural economic growth and that narrative that the U.S. economy can hold higher rates for longer. Well, that structural economic growth is created through increased productivity. We have higher labor market participation. We're at pre-pandemic levels and that increased productivity we heard from earnings. And so that's where I do see the value and where we could absolutely see a, 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 a strong amount of demand that will just come from the tech side through the end of the year. You know, Bob, you watch the market so closely. If you think about all the risk factors, it's it's rates, it's geopolitics, it's labor with uh, the ongoing rolling strikes that we've seen in so many different industries. Now we're talking about political dysfunction yet again in Washington as we speak, as the speaker yeah. tries to hold on to his gavel. Yeah. And you know, you wonder what happens if that takes a turn uh, for his demise in that position. Just another thing that the market needs to get its arms around as it's trying to find some footing in, in, a, in a mushy a ground area. Yeah, and now we have this whole issue about the amount of debt that's out there. So it, 
what, what's 8% of the U.S. budget goes to paying down debt. That's going to very quickly go up to 9%, 10%. This is now going to become more of a political issue. It's going to give a lot of people who've been the bond vigilantes who've been screaming about this for a long, long time added ammunition. So there's a sort of additional overlay that's gone into this thing. I'm just looking for signs of capitulation at this point here. Volume is up higher. It's been up the last few days, but not that high. I keep looking at the things like put call ratios. They're up a little bit, but I wouldn't say dramatically elevated. I don't know what you think, Mike. VIX at 20, yeah. I don't see that panicky yet. I, I look at 28, 30. That's when I start But don't we normally panicky. do like 900... Um, 900 million to a billion shares. Yeah, we should do, We got 555. Yeah, we should. Well, first off, the floor is not necessarily indicative of the off trade. Yeah, the market closes a huge percentage. Yeah, that's that's going to go up. We'll do about 10.5 billion shares total in the NYSE today. But that's not dramatically high. I, I I keep waiting for this moment for the traditional signals, and I still don't see them. Yeah, it's not really there. I mean, look, down eight percent. It's hard, you know you know you don't know what the exact perfect amount of panic you'd like to see uh, on that for the S and P move. Uh, I do think in terms of the if it's not one thing it's another and you know geopolitics piled on top of congressional dysfunction there's not a correction in history that did not seem at the lows like there was just intractable issues that people were starting to notice all at once right it's never just one thing that's wrong it's never just one economic report it's this sense that there's no escape so i don't know that we're at the depths of it yet but that's not uncommon to have that feeling out there that we're just getting stuff piled on yeah. top of it yeah, jessica gave us some numbers to keep our eye on near-term support 42.18, barely above that, eight points or so. Jessica, thank you for being with us. Bob Pisani, thank you so much. Mike, of course, to you. So we're red, big time. Uh, not 500, but the Dow's down about 437 as we speak. Into OT with Morgan and John. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.